Hey, can we take a second and just honor those who serve in the military, who currently serve or have served? Would you just stand right where you're at? And we want to show our appreciation. If you can, yeah, brother. Appreciate you. We have a little something in the lot to celebrate you. So make sure you stop by before you leave, all right? Hey, listen, if you're new to the church, uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us. As Pastor Chris said, we would love to have the opportunity to connect with you. If you would just take a second and scan that little QR code, we would really appreciate it. Uh, we have been studying this remarkable book that's found in the Bible, in the New Testament section of the Bible. The Bible is divided into two parts, Old Testament and New Testament. And the book of Acts is really, essentially, it's a historical document written by eyewitnesses. One in particular, this man named Luke, was a physician. He takes off his hat as a physician, puts on his investigative journalist hat, and does a remarkable job of chronicling the life, early life, and the rise of Christianity. It kind of answers the question, how did we get here in the first place? Um, we've seen the church grow from about 120 to several thousand in about two months. So the question has to be asked, how is that even possible, right? I mean, so many movements back in the day, they had some leader who claimed to be of some importance, but when that leader died, the movement died with him. But that wasn't the case with Christianity. When the leader died, all of a sudden, Christianity was like, whatever sparks there were, just were fanned into flame. So there's only one reasonable, logical, plausible explanation for the rise of Christianity, and I'm going to give it to you. People actually saw, they encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ. That is the only reason why Christianity gets off the ground, period. Without the resurrection, it does not survive. But people became very vocal. They started talking. And the religious leaders of the day they were unnerved by this because they were the very ones who delivered Jesus up to be crucified. They thought they had dealt with the problem, but now they have a bigger problem because all these people, all these people are saying, no, Jesus did what he said he was going to do, and we can't ignore it. We have to talk. So as the early church grew rapidly, there were some needs that were being unmet. That happens often in rapidly growing churches. There's a legitimate complaint that's made. Some of the widows are not being taken care of, and they're like, we got to take care of our own. So they select these individuals who are defined, beautiful description, as being filled with the Spirit of God. What does that mean? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, we have a yardstick by which we can measure how filled a person is with God's Spirit. Say, what does it look like? It's fruit of the Spirit. That person is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. And if you have the last one, you probably have them all. Self-control. Right? I mean, these are the people that you want to take care of grandma. That was the need. And so this guy, Stephen, was chosen. Additionally, Stephen is another one of those guys who's very outspoken. Wherever he goes, in fact, he's entering these synagogues, the very Jewish places of worship, He's opening up the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, that was the Bible of their day, that's the Bible Jesus read, by the way, and he's explaining that Jesus is the fulfillment of every single one of those prophecies about a forthcoming Messiah. 
And the religious leaders take notice. And they're like, oh, okay, we have to deal with this guy. So in chapter 6, beginning with verse 9, we read the setup. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and we talked about how this was a group of Jews who had been given their, their freedom by the Romans. The Jews were given a lot of different freedoms. They couldn't carry out their own executions. This is why they had to have Jesus delivered up to be crucified to Roman authority. But they were given quite a few freedoms. And so this was a group of Jews who belonged to this synagogue who had been given freedoms. Along with them, there were some Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia. So all of these groups, they rose up and they disputed with this man, Stephen. What were they arguing? Well, Stephen was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, not everybody was buying into this, even in the synagogue. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So if you can't win the argument, attack the one who's making the argument. Then they secretly instigated men who said, now we've heard, we've, we've heard Stephen say some blasphemous things. He's speaking against Moses and he's speaking against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. These are all the guys that have religious authority. And they came upon Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. Think of this as the, the Jewish Supreme Court of its time. And they set up false witnesses, and they give false testimony. They say, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that would be the temple, and against the law, the law that God gave us. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses, our man Moses, another, Stephen is undermining everything that we believe as Jews. And it's all fake, it's all false. Of course, this isn't Stephen's purpose. But these are very serious charges. In fact, um, in everyday Jewish life, you couldn't be accused of more serious crimes than speaking against the great patriarch Moses, the law that God gave him, the temple, God's holy place, and speaking against God himself. The penalty, the penalty for these accusations was death, okay? Very serious charges. So in chapter 7, Steve gives his defense. Wrong word. Stephen doesn't defend himself at all. Instead, he turns the tables, and he uses the Old Testament as a guide through which he will reveal the guilt of those who are accusing him. It's totally brilliant. He's going to use the, their own sacred texts from the beginning. It's like he gives a survey of their history and he places his accusers in that history and he says, you're just like our forefathers. You're making the same mistakes that they're making and I'll prove it to you. Let's begin at the beginning with the great patriarch Abraham, the one who started it all. So uh, picture him before the Jewish court and the high priest said, are these things so? Is it true that you're speaking against God? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. So he begins with a, a, a real sense of respect for the audience. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, I want you to do a couple of things. Number one, I want you to leave your land. Go out from your land 
and go from your kindred. So in other words, he says, we're going to have this special relationship, you and I, Abraham, but you're going to have to leave all that you know behind. And this is where you're going to learn to trust me because I'm not even going to show you where you're going, but you're going to have to leave the land that you live in, which is a big deal because most people, you're born and you die in the town in which you live. He says, leave it. And then he says, you're going to have to leave your family behind too. Go to the place that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And then Stephen mentions this. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are all living. So he says, let's begin with, this, with, with, with the great patriarch Abraham. He's the one who started it all. God entered into a special relationship with him, called him out of his land, away from his family. But he wasn't obedient to God because along the way, his father died and God had already told him, don't take your family with you. Leave them behind. So it's interesting that Stephen would bring up this little detail of all the things he could recount from the life of Abraham. He says, his father died along the way. Why does he say that? Because he's illustrating this point. Our forefathers weren't totally obedient to what God asked them to do. And when Abraham took his relatives with him, his nephew in particular, Lot, almost caused the death of Abraham. If only he would have listened, it would have been much better for him. But he didn't. He ignored it. Took his family with him. Caused a lot of pain, heartache, and drama. But he was disobedient. The reason why Stephen brings this up is because the implication is you are just like Abraham in that you are disobedient to what God is asking of you. More so, as we move along in our nation's history, let's talk about Joseph. Stephen knows his Bible. He tells the story from Genesis chapter 37. He says, and the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. So you might know the story of Joseph. He was young. He was immature. He was also daddy's favorite, and he knew it. And he bragged about it. He was the baby. He had older brothers. Now, uh, my mom had, a, you know, she had four kids in approximately six years. And then about 15 years later, surprise, <laughs> right? I know I'm an accident. I don't care. I'm here. God's will, you know? But I know what it's like to have older brothers. And I know what it's like to be way more successful than them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's a total joke. That's what brothers say to brothers. When I was little, my brothers used to toss me around like a rag doll. But then baby brother started to grow. And he grew, and he grew, and now he's 6'5". And I don't get tossed around anymore. But this is what brothers do. So imagine baby brother, he's arrogant, he's proud, I'm dad's favorite, and older brothers are like, we've heard enough from you, youngster. We're gonna get rid of you. No, it was his own immaturity, right? So they sell him as a slave. But God was with him. And God rescued Joseph. He rescued him out of all his afflictions, and he had a number of them. And he gave him favor. And he gave him wisdom before Pharaoh. 
king of Egypt, one of the most powerful men the world has ever known. Pharaoh made Joseph ruler over Egypt. He's like the number two man in charge. And over all of Pharaoh's household. And he goes on to say that even though his brothers rejected him, God put Joseph in the position, watch this now, of saving his brothers. Because there's a famine that takes place. And his brothers, their stomachs start to grumble. And they're like, we're going to starve to death. And so dad says, well, we'll go to Egypt. There's food there. Not knowing that the dude in charge of the food is their little brother. And Joseph ends up saving the lives of his family. The very people who rejected him. Implication. You are accusing me of blaspheming God. But you see, you're just like Joseph's brothers. You rejected the one whom God sent to save you. No, you see, I'm not on trial here. You are. And our own sacred texts will show you. Well, he's also accused of disrespecting Moses specifically. So next he turns his attention to that patriarch. He begins by reminding him that, that Moses was born under this crazy Egyptian pharaoh who wanted all Israelite babies killed. And so what happens is God spares Moses. He lives. But you know what's interesting? Is that Moses is a lot like Jesus because Jesus was born under King Herod and King Herod wanted all Jewish baby boys killed. And so Stephen says, you know, Moses and Jesus were both born under the same circumstances. Isn't that interesting? They share the same beginnings. They had the same start in life. More to the point, Moses was rejected by his own people in the same way that you all rejected Jesus, his own people. Verse 23, for when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So at this time, Moses has a place of privilege, but he sees his Israelite brothers and they're struggling for 400 years. The Israelites were under Egyptian rule, treated as slaves harshly. And so there's an Egyptian who rises up and mistreats one of Moses' Israelite brothers. And Moses puts an end to it. He kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Don't you see that I'm here to rescue you from Egyptian rule? But they did not understand. In verse 35, Stephen says, this Moses, whom they rejected, they even said to Moses, Moses, who do you think you are? You think you are judge over us? You think you're a ruler over us? Who do you think you are? Well, that same man, Moses, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Stephen's message is so plain and so blatant. He says, you all have rejected Jesus. 
just like your forefathers have rejected Moses. In the same way that our forefathers said to Moses, who do you think you are? That's exactly the question you put to Jesus when he was before you. The very same men that put him on trial. You think you're the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? Even more so, Moses actually saw Jesus' day coming. Verse 37, this is the same Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so isn't it interesting, this is the brilliance of Stephen, he says, you know, Jesus and Moses had the same start in life, and Moses said another prophet's going to come, and he's going to be just like me, even from the very beginning. The people in charge are going to want us dead. Even before we, we, we learn, we know how to walk, people are going to want, want us to kill us. We had the same start. In other words, Stephen saying, Moses was thinking about Jesus. Lastly, Stephen takes up the charge of speaking against the temple. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So in Exodus chapter, Stephen knows his Bible really well. In Exodus chapter 26, God gives specific instructions on how the tent is to be built. So when the people were wandering around in the desert under Moses' leadership, they wanted a place where they could meet with God. But it had to be temporary. What do you do with a tent, right? You go camping, you, you set up the tent, then when you're done, you take it down, you move to a new location, you set up. So as they moved around, they set up and took down this tent. And that's where they met with, with God. And God gave them very specific, specific instructions on how it was to be built. So that's what they did. Our fathers, in turn, brought the tent in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So now they, they come to this land that they now occupy so they don't necessarily need the tent. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So David established he wanted to build a permanent place, a temple for God. Not something that could be taken down, but a permanent place. Now that they have their own land, and God said, that's a great idea, we'll do that, but you're not the one to build it, it's gonna be your son Solomon. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So he recounts that part of their history, no disrespect, no dispute, none of that. But what he does next is he confronts their idolatry of the temple. In their own time, the religious leaders loved having power over the temple itself. Because if you controlled the temple, you controlled every aspect of Jewish life. This is why when Jesus approached the temple and he sees the money changers, what does he do? He gets violent. And he takes the tables, he's turning them over, and he's like, how dare you turn this sacred place? My, it's a very bold claim when he claims the temple as the house of his father, and he says, you're robbing people with it. You're robbing people with it. See, you want to control the temple so you can control the people and retain your power. You think you can put God in a box? You think you can confine him to some space that you've created with your hands? So he quotes the prophet Isaiah, verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, God speaks and says, heaven is my throne. And I'm just going to go ahead and rest my feet on the planet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not 
my hand make everything? So God is so much bigger than the temple which they idolized. Now, at this point, you can just sense the anger and frustration rising up in these men who oppose him. And you can, you can almost hear their whispers. Okay, what are we going to do about him? Well, clearly he needs to die. But how are we going to do this? How are we going to silence this man? He's saying too much. And then he unloads the implications. Verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. That was a put-down back in the day. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're not sensitive to the things of God. You don't even listen to the things of God. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and you murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. So Stephen is accused of rejecting the law, and yet he flips it on him and he says, you're the ones on trial here, not me. You're the guilty ones. And our own scriptures confirm it. Okay, so with this, he's a dead man walking. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. As an interesting side note, the literal translation of this phrase, grind teeth, it literally means to be sawn in two. It literally means to be ripped apart, just to rip flesh apart. It's this picture that someone is so angry, they're like, they just have to punch something, they have to hit it. As a side note, this is one of the main descriptions of those who are in hell. A lot of people think that hell is a place of sorrow, and that's true in part, but it's more than that. Hell is filled with people who are furiously angry. In fact, listen to this from Luke chapter 13. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you see all the prophets and they are in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. The people who are cast out are furious. They're angry at God for being there. Well, what's next for Stephen? Well, it's actually the highest honor I think one can receive, verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazes into heaven. And he sees the glory of God. What does that even mean? Glory is that which you manifest about yourself. Paul says that star differs from star in glory. Some are bright. Some are not so bright. Some are big, some are small, some are medium. They're not all exactly the same. Glory is that which you manifest about yourself. So Stephen sees the glory of God. Now, as you, as you read about the glory of God throughout the Old Testament, one of the primary attributes of God's glory on display is his holiness, his purity. And he sees the purity and holiness of God, but he sees something else. He sees Jesus. Note the posture. 
standing. And he's standing at the right hand of God. They were full of anger. He's full of the Spirit. And he catches a glimpse of God. And he sees Jesus. Now, Jesus himself was asked, are you the Messiah by these very same people? And he says, yes, I am the Messiah. And then he has this. And I will take my place at the right hand of power. And I will be seated there. So, Jesus ascends to heaven and he takes his place. And when you're sitting, it's just the, it's the idea that the work is done. You know, it, it's been completed. This is why, of all the things that Jesus could utter on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. So he takes a seat. But the text is curious because it, it's not that Jesus is sitting. Stephen sees Jesus standing. That's an important detail. What happens when someone of greatness walks into the room? You stand out of respect. There's this picture of Jesus now giving Stephen this incredible mercy amidst the horrors of being stoned. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I'm about to welcome you home. I'm about to welcome you into heaven. And Stephen verbalizes in front of everybody what he sees. And as he does so, it is the final stone to his head, the nail in his coffin. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The full fury of his accusers has been unleashed now because again, these are the very ones when they questioned Jesus, they heard Jesus say, yeah, I am the Messiah and I'm gonna take my rightful place at the right hand of God. And now they hear Stephen say, I see Jesus in the very spot that he told you he was gonna be. And they're out of their minds. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. Now we know you gotta die. And so, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. You ever been bum-rushed by a bunch of dudes? The, this word rush is really interesting. It's the same word used to describe the demons that were cast into the pigs, like they rush into them. They rush upon Stephen and then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments. This is an important detail. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul because when you're slinging rocks at somebody, you don't want a heavy overcoat impeding your arm momentum. So you throw your robes down. But they laid him at the feet of a man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, which by the way was against Roman law, again, this is why the Jews had to have Roman, the Romans' permission to have Jesus executed. They couldn't do it on their own, but who cares? They're just, they're mad. They're gonna carry out their own execution. Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. By the way, there's no such thing as purgatory. It's not in your Bible. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Mishnah records the stoning process, and it's quite brutal. A person was taken to a height, about twice the height of the average human, anywhere from 10 to 12 feet high, hands and feet bound. The Mishnah is Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Hands and feet bound, facing forward, and they are pushed off the cliff face first. If they survive, then they are rolled over, and a massive stone is thrown right at the heart. If they survive that, then they finish the job with stones to the head. Stephen seems to survive the fall. Falls to his knees, verse 16, he cries out with a loud voice, a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Some of Jesus' last words on the cross, Father, forgive them. Where do you think Stephen picked up this attitude? See, this is one of the reasons how do you know, Christian, that you have embraced God's forgiveness? How do you really know that? You extend forgiveness to others. Look, you cannot get through life without carrying some wounds. Life has a way of taking things from you. Uh, people have a way of stabbing you in the back and in the front. Um, expectations are not met. Sometimes those are legitimate expectations and people let you down and you feel the tension of withholding forgiveness because the hurt is so deep and it's especially difficult when the person who has offended you, when they think they've done nothing wrong or when they play the victim, that's even gnarlier. There have been times in my life where I'm like, oh. This is just too painful. Christian, why would you forgive? Two reasons. Number one, you are never more like Jesus than when you forgive those who hurt you. And number two, forgiveness has as much to do with the condition and welfare of your own heart as anything else. Because if you hold on to it, if you hold on to the pain, bitterness, resentment, anger, and those things will be your own undoing. People look at the life of Stephen and think, wow, he's so bold, that's what made him so effective. I think not. I think it was the condition of his heart. I mean, he cares enough to bring them to this place of repentance, but they don't go there. His story is living and dying proof of what Peter writes. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's been said that the church owes her existence in large part to the prayer of Stephen, and I think that's very true. Because when Stephen prayed, Father, forgive them, included in that prayer was this guy named Saul. Stephen's praying, God, forgive Saul. Forgive everyone involved in this. 
a short time, Saul will have a radical encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He will move from being the one who persecutes to the one who will be persecuted. He will go on to become the greatest church planter of all time. The rest of us church planters, when Paul walks in the room, we stand up. God answered the prayer of Stephen in the life of Paul. In fact, the rest of the book, from about chapters 12 on, it's all about Saul, who you better know as Paul. It's all about his life and his ministry and his work in furthering the gospel. That doesn't happen without Stephen's prayer being answered. And what I want to say to you, Christian, is, look, you and I carry the ministry of forgiveness with us wherever we go. And so as challenging as it is, my prayer this week is that God, through his spirit, would just be pressing in on you as he presses in on me. Where do you need to extend the forgiveness? Where's the prayer? Father, forgive them. Alternatively, you might be in the room or you might be listening online, and you might be in the place where you're like, you know what, I kind of identify more with the nation of Israel, the ancient people of God, because I've just rejected Jesus. And at one point, Jesus will call it for what it is. And I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm at the front of this line very often. Jesus just says, here's the issue. You're just stubborn. You're just stubborn. And you know what's at the heart of your stubbornness? Pride and ego. And some people will say, well, I just can't deal with commands. I just don't like commands. There's all these commands in the Bible. Okay, don't think of them as commands. Think of them, watch this. Think of them as invitations. Is that better? These are invitations for you to enter into that life that will lead you to what you have always wanted. So don't think of them as commands. Think of these as the good invitations. Who doesn't want to, you like, you like being invited into things? That's what God is saying. So don't think of them as commands so much as think of them as invitations into the life that you've always wanted. Because if you choose to do the opposite, I assure you, it's not gonna go well for you. Many of us can give witness and say, I tried it that way. I tried, I tried withholding forgiveness. And you know what? It just ate me up inside. It was to my own undoing. And I firmly believe that to the degree that we understand that we've been forgiven, it is to that degree that we extend forgiveness to others. So we need God's help, Father. I know for some these are really difficult words because the hurt is real, the wound is deep. But you know, Jesus is the example in all things. In all things. He doesn't just speak it, he lives it. So Father, even as we leave this place today, God, would your spirit do what only he can do? Speak to our hearts. Father, for those who are far, please draw near. God, for those who have been wrestling and struggling, even with a specific individual, God, would you just bring healing? And that healing really comes when we revisit the cross and we see the wounds upon Jesus that we inflicted, that Jesus accepted and forgave. As we do this, Lord, would you use us to be more like Stephen in drawing those into a relationship with you? Father, as always, 
We want to make the name of Jesus known and we want to make him famous. All for your glory we pray. In the name of the one who makes it all possible, his name is Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.